Well, I can't believe it. I'm so... Like, you hear about these things happening, but it's, it's actually happened to me. I'm so lucky. It's amazing. See, I've had an email. It was from a Prince Aliusi Islasis. This book's a Nigerian prince, okay? So, you know... And he says, the Nigerian National Petroleum Company has recently concluded a large number of contracts for oil exploration, producing monies equaling 40 million US dollars. The Nigerian National Petroleum Company is desirous of oil exploration in other parts of the world. However, because of certain regulations of the Nigerian government, it is unable to move these funds to another region. Big problem. However, there's a solution. They want to put that money in my account so I can move it around for them, and they'll give me 10%, 4 million US dollars, just, that's it. Easy, simple. There's the small like, detail. However, to be a legitimate transferee of these monies, according to the Nigerian law, you must presently be a depositor of at least 10,000 US dollars in a Nigerian bank, which is regulated by the Central Bank of Nigeria. So that's simple, isn't it? I give them $10,000. It seems too good to be true, doesn't it? It's because it is. It's not true. It's like an ancient scam. It's been going on since before the internet was invented. It seems too good to be true, and it is. But in today's passage, the Apostle Paul is dealing with another sort of too-good-to-be-true problem. See, the Galatian churches have come under influence of false teachers. They've been convinced that the gospel that Paul has been preaching is too good to be true. Paul's been preaching that we are saved from beginning to end by grace through Jesus. That Jesus died in our place, paying the price in full for all our sins so that we can be forgiven, made right with God, part of his new creation starting right now. We don't have to contribute anything to be saved, just transfer our trust to Jesus. But for the false teachers, that seems too good to be true. They've tried to add to this gospel, saying that male believers must also be circumcised. And it seems they've been going around undermining Paul's reputation um, to undermine his ministry and undermine his message. It's like, you know, on reality TV shows where it's clear who it is you're not supposed to like because they play the sort of like the minor chords and the, they always show capture footage of them showing a, a scowl or a sneer. That's what the false teachers are doing. You can imagine what they're saying. Oh, you know, Paul, he wasn't one of the original 12, was he? And he was a Pharisee. You know what they're like. He's not even from Jerusalem. He's, he's from Tarsus. And he spent three years in Arabia. Well dodgy. And last week, we saw that Paul starting to make a defense that if you try and change the gospel in any way, he said, it's no gospel at all. It's no longer good news, but bad news. So where we pick it up today, it's pretty simple. All I want you to walk away with is renewed and deepened confidence in the gospel for two reasons. Confidence in the gospel because it comes straight from Jesus. It's not just some bloke's idea. And confidence in the gospel, because it's the same gospel that's come to all the apostles and is consistent throughout the New Testament, indeed throughout the whole Bible. 
So confidence in the gospel, that it isn't too good to be true. So you've got an outline there. First of all, whose gospel? Looking at verses 11 and 12. Last time we saw um, from 1 verse 1, Paul claimed that he was commissioned by Jesus, who was sat on this road of apostleship. Now he's arguing that his message itself is straight from Jesus. So verse 11. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus, from Jesus Christ. So that's three negatives about his message. Not of human origin, not received from any man, nor is he being taught it. It's not some other human being's idea. Rather, it's straight from the risen Jesus himself. I think, what a claim. Paul is claiming that there is an absolute solid truth to be known and that he's been given it directly by the Son of God. Now, putting Paul and this particular issue to one side for a minute, isn't anyone claiming to have the truth arrogant and dangerous even? Well, the thing is, everyone lives as though something is true. Everyone lives as though something is true and significant. None of us live life as though we are just the random product of chance. Even people who think that is what they think don't live life as if we aren't significant. And what humanity tends to do is we come to a consensus as a culture, broadly, about what truth is most palatable to our culture, and then we become intolerant of any claim against that truth. Now, it's always been like that. It always will be. It's just we're feeling it more these days because we're more on the receiving end of being not tolerated rather than not tolerating what we perceive to be not true, what we know to be not true. Um, Our family watched this movie recently, I don't know if you've seen it. It's on Netflix, Small Foot. Um, so a community of Yetis live on a remote mountain top, governed by ancient truths inspired on rocks that this bloke wears. Um, literally, the truth is literally written in stone. Uh, and the opening song is about how if a question that they write, raises in the mind challenges the stones, you have to push it down deep inside. Now, at first I thought this, this movie's got, having a go at people of, of faith. But actually, it's really, it's having a go at blindly accepting something as true without questioning it. And Christianity just doesn't do that. Christianity is played out on history's stage. Um, it, it puts itself in the firing line of inquiry and testing and reason. So that we can say our faith is not a blind faith, it's a reasoned faith. So what about Paul's claim that his gospel message is not his own or some other blokes, but straight from Jesus? How do we test that? Why should anyone believe him? Well, he offers evidence. He offers evidence as evidence, his testimony, his life story. So case study one. It's, we'll look at what happened before 
during and after Paul's conversion. Before, during and after. So before, verses 13 and 14. Before his conversion, Paul's hell-bent on destroying the gospel. He's hell-bent on destroying the very gospel that he's now preaching. You know, Paul was there holding the coats whilst the disciple Stephen was stoned to death. Paul was guilty of dragging Christians from their homes and throwing them in prison, of violently persecuting. You can imagine what the false teachers have been saying to the Galatians, these new Gentile converts. They're saying, well, of course Paul is saying to you, you don't need to be circumcised. That's very convenient, isn't it? But Paul counters that as far as people-pleasing goes, before he was converted, he was top of the game. He was Mr. Popularity, head of the class, at being a zealous Jew. In short, Paul was the last person in the world anyone would expect to be converted to Christianity. And yet, verse 15, his conversion God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So notice when Paul talks about his conversion, his emphasis on God's initiative and God's grace. He credits God with choosing him. It's not anything he or anyone else has done to make it happen. I mean, Paul must have heard things about Jesus before as he went around persecuting his followers. But at Paul's conversion, he heard Jesus' voice for himself. And God unveiled, showed him like an unmistakable heart level, like an inner revelation of Jesus. And isn't that how you feel? Um, I was in the UK on holiday in January. And I was out with one of my oldest friends I knew from school. And he, he asked, he said, Colin, why have you stuck at your faith? Why have you become a pastor when the rest of us have let it go? And I don't know why they've let it go. But all I said was, look, I just can't unknow that Jesus is real. I can't unknow who he is and what he's done for me. I'm summarizing a long conversation there. I don't want to be one of these pastors that tells you, I'm just so awesome, uh, and I say everything so clearly every time. People like to give you that impression. No, it was a long conversation, but that was the gist of it. An inner revelation that you can't unknow. So Paul credits God with his conversion. But the, the accusation goes, didn't he then get his message from other people and then just put his own spin on it? Well, no, verse 16, second half of verse 16, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. So for three years, he goes down to Arabia, nowhere near the other disciples. And then eventually he does pop into Jerusalem, but, but only for a fortnight, and he only bumped into Peter and James. And we know from the book of Acts that he spent most of that time preaching. Then after that, he goes far north, and again, not hanging out with the other apostles. So all this Paul goes through to say, how do you explain 
How else do you explain this incredible change in me? How else do you explain me coming out with the same gospel as the other apostles? Completely independently of them coming out with the same gospel. The only reasonable explanation is that what I'm saying is true. God appointed me to witness Jesus and Jesus himself gave me the message to share. And I reckon a lot of us can relate to that. A change in ourselves that can only be explained by the intervention of Jesus living in us by his spirit. Um, it strikes me, whenever we do marriage prep with a couple, Sharon and I do marriage prep, I always find it pretty confronting. Because it involves me looking back on all the ways I haven't been a good husband. But it's encouraging too. Because I can see changes in me that I can only credit to God. That I couldn't have come up with myself. And if you are struggling with your character and you know you need to change, or if you're praying for someone who seems a million miles from coming to faith, the last person in the world that would trust in Jesus, be encouraged by this testimony of the Apostle Paul. God can change anyone, and God can bring anyone to faith in Jesus. No one is too far gone for God. And all the clever arguments of false teachers and all the clever clever arguments we hear against our reasoned faith can be undone by this question. Yeah, look, I get your objections, but what if I'm saying what I'm saying is true? What if it's true? The, The kind of evidence you'd expect that it is true our faith, on a fair, impartial assessment, is the kind of evidence that we've got. And certainly you would expect, across the Bible, consistency. And that's what we've got. Our next point, looking at chapter 2, we've got one gospel. One gospel. The big question for the Galatians is, is this gospel um, the same as those who were physically around Jesus during his life and death and resurrection? Is is Paul preaching the same gospel as them? Is he missing anything or is he adding anything? Because if he is, we can dismiss what he has to say as his own made-up stuff. Merely human opinion and not what Jesus says. So case study two, we'll look at Paul and who he's with, the false believers and the other apostles, the Jerusalem crew. So first, Paul. Uh, Paul does end up in Jerusalem, but uh, he doesn't really go to compare notes with the other apostles. He's not there because he's, he's been summoned by them and he felt that they had more authority than him. He's there in Jerusalem because God told him to go. Chapter two, verse two. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. 
So we think he's probably gone. This, he could be talking about Acts 11, when um, there's a prophecy by a bloke called Agabus about a severe famine. And Paul and others um, are appointed to take famine relief. So that could be why he's gone to Jerusalem. In any case, he has a private meeting with the Jerusalem apostles, Peter, James, who was Jesus' brother, and John. But what's also interesting is who Paul has with him. He's got Barnabas, uh, a new convert who's, who was Jewish, but he's also got with him Titus from Crete. Titus was a Greek, not Jewish, not circumcised. So, if, as the Galatians have come to believe, the gospel includes the need to be circumcised, well, there's a test case right there in front of them. So chapter 2, verse 2, uh, Paul says, I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. So he's not, he's not doubting his own gospel. He's not doubting that he's got the real deal message from Jesus. But he just wants to be sure that he isn't going to be undermined by another gospel coming out from the other apostles. Because can you imagine if they did come out and say, going around all those towns that Paul had been to, to all these new converts saying, actually, yes, you do need circumcising. Because Paul's uh, gospel of grace without works of the law would just be shown to be plain wrong. And he might as well go back to his old job at Tents of Tarsus. So that's Paul and company. There's also around false believers. See, the whole circumcision issue has arisen because verse 4 some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves so he calls them false believers not Christians believers who are a bit misguided but false believers and that's because the essence of the gospel is grace it's about what Jesus has done for us, not what we do for him. And as Paul said in chapter 1, to add anything to this gospel is no gospel at all. Because adding something means immediately denying that Jesus is enough. So verse 5, we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. That's Paul's aim in writing to the Galatians and his determination at, at this meeting with the apostles that the truth of the gospel is preserved. You know, on one level, this chapter two, it's a bit uh, kind of dry, isn't it? Because essentially, it's, it's the meetings of a minute, uh, the minutes of a meeting, sorry. It's the minutes of a meeting, sounds a bit dry. But what's at stake is how people will spend eternity. What's at stake is whether people will hear the truth or lies. So back in the UK, part of one of my jobs was quality manager. It's about as exciting as it sounds, not very. And so what I had to do is make sure that the appropriate tests on x-ray equipment were done at the appropriate time. And let me tell you, those tests were tedious. They were boring. 
and everyone used, we all complained about them, and everyone moaned at me for me and asked them to do them. But you know, none of us thought that they were a daft idea. We knew that people's lives were at stake. So sometimes we have to get a bit finickety to defend the gospel. That's why you set aside people like me to put in the hard yards of making sure that what is taught here is the original apostolic message. It's why we have people like Phil Locke who preached here a few weeks ago. He's doing a PhD in a very niche little bit of, of a tiny little bit of the Bible, a tiny little subject. But we need people like that doing that kind of study because we will always have false believers trying to change the gospel into no gospel at all. And then finally, there's the Jerusalem crew, the other apostles. Paul presents the gospel to the other apostles. And verse 6, As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. Now, Paul's not trying to put down the other apostles there. He's just saying that for them and for him, what is important is not how great or esteemed they are, What's important is what their gospel message is. And their assessment of what Paul is preaching, it lacks nothing. It's the full deal. Nothing, including circumcision, nothing needs adding. Verse 7, on the contrary, they recognize that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. So they work out that they are all on the same page. There is only one gospel. Despite the Bible being 66 different books written by different authors in different styles over hundreds and hundreds of years, you know, the Bible is one single coherent narrative. Paul's gospel matches the gospel writer's gospel. The other apostles' New Testament writings they have different emphases and imagery, yeah? But the same gospel. So the New Testament is consistent within itself, and the New Testament is consistent with a fulfillment of the Old Testament. Together, the whole Bible goes together and makes one gospel. So Paul and the other apostles, they've got the same good news message about Jesus, and it's just that they're taking it to different groups. So Peter, James, and John are taking it to the Jews, and Paul's mission is to take it to the Gentiles. A few years ago, I preached at um, um, Brighton, used to do carols at the bay, and there's four or 500 people there, most of them not Christian, and so I preached evangelistically. But a few days later, I got an angry letter in the post. It was anonymous, of course. They always are, aren't they, angry letters? And this person accused me of watering down the gospel. Accused me of failing to challenge people about their sinfulness, about their need for God, failing to call them to repentance and faith and trust in Jesus. And I thought, have they sent this to the wrong church? Because I'd said all that stuff. 
I had done that. But in the letter, there was also a pamphlet. And at the heart of the complaint was that I hadn't outlined the gospel in exactly those words in exactly the same way that that pamphlet did. That was their problem with me. So the issue is, fancy word alert, contextualization. All right, contextualization. So this is the idea of changing the way you present the gospel depending on who you are sharing it with. Now, from a place of good-heartedness, some people will say, well, the gospel is unchanging. It is what it is. It's above culture, and there's no need to adapt to its presentation in any way. And I absolutely agree. We must not change the gospel. We must not compromise it or water it down. And if God can convert Paul, who is culturally and theologically opposed to Jesus... He can convert anyone anywhere. It doesn't need us to be clever about it. But we can make it as easy as possible for our hearers to hear and understand the gospel. And I would argue that actually we always contextualize the gospel, even if we're not trying to. So even just translating the Bible into English is contextualizing the gospel, choosing to put it across in English rather than ancient Greek. It's better to recognize that all of us, just in general life as well, we change how we say things dependent on our audience. And to just own that and choose to do it well. And that's what Paul and James and Peter and John have done. Paul going to the Gentiles, the others going to the Jews. So a famous example is Paul um, speaking at the very Greek Areopagus at Athens. You see that in Acts 17. Um, Paul speaks in their format about their beliefs um, in presenting the gospel, uses their language. Now, lots of people will point that out to you. Fewer people will point out to you that he also tells them very bluntly, you are ignorant and what you believe is wrong and God isn't going to tolerate it anymore. So we need to contextualize but not water down the gospel. Helping people understand the gospel doesn't mean having to water it down. And a good aim, and one we have for every service here, is to let the only thing that offends or the only thing that is a barrier to be the gospel itself. So for you personally, keep paying attention to the people in your life. You know, keep asking yourself, what are their hopes and dreams? What gospel are they buying into? What is their good news story? Get to know what that is, and then think about how the true gospel is better. And let them in on that secret. The problem has always been, and always will be, that for pride-filled humans, grace is hard to swallow. It seems too good to be true. It's a hard thing to admit, I'm wrong. I'm so wrong that I can't do anything to save myself. And we hear so many distortions and lies about who God is and what he's like, that it's hard to believe that God can be so loving, so full of grace, that in Jesus, 
he's done absolutely everything at great cost everything we need to be saved but that is what he's done people are looking for the truth they've been offered alternative gospels and those gospels just don't stack up because they are not the one true gospel so you can have absolute confidence in the gospel it comes straight from Jesus it's not just some bloke's idea and that same gospel came to the apostles and it's consistent throughout the New Testament the gospel is not too good to be true let's pray Uh, Lord, we come before you with um, most of what we hear most of the time, asking us to doubt your truth, asking us to doubt Jesus, and we can feel bombarded. So we ask you by your spirit to uh, give us confidence in your gospel. Help us to see that evidence, see that character change, have that inner witness that you give us. Help us to have confidence in your gospel because it's straight from Jesus, because we have that consistent witness in your word. Amen.